This episode of Dragged Out is brought to you by JQ Clothing, proudly serving the community of Vancouver since 2000. JQ has changed a lot since they called themselves Jean Queen. These days, JQ sources vibrant, colorful articles from the hippest boutiques in North America. If you're looking for festival fashion, cosplay wear, or just something fun to add to your wardrobe, JQ Clothing is your one-stop shop. Head to jqclothing.com to find out more. JQ Clothing. Love, laughter, and acceptance for all gender identities since 2000. In early 2018, it was announced that the Cobalt would be closing temporarily. The reason? The building was old. It was actually sinking into the ground it stood on. Standing outside of it today, you can tell that, at least the building itself, needs a bit of work. Like it's an old bar that's in desperate need of a few touch-ups. So, it should have been celebrated that this bar was going to take a few months to reopen, right? Well, it's been a while since the Cobalt closed its doors, and it doesn't seem like it'll be reopening anytime soon. This was a huge hit to people who perform drag in the East End. A bunch of really well-known and well-attended shows happen there frequently. So the fact that this venue may be yet another lost one for the scene sits really heavily with folks who performed there. I was freaking devastated. It was so sad because that was a place where I felt like I had literally grown up. I had been going there um, just like four parties even before I was performing. Um, and it was one of the first spaces that I, like first like nightlife sort of spaces where I felt completely comfortable. It was a beautiful room and just had like so much history and just the, the, the warmth you know, and character of the brick walls and, like, the red velvet backdrop curtain. And there was just so many, like, physical features of that room that I really, really appreciated and loved. And, um, I mean, just, like, the staff and management were unmatched. Like, it was such a family there. And, you know, they were criticized early on by people in the community for, you know, they'll never make it. They're just trying to do too many different things. They're doing queer nights. They're doing band nights. They're doing art nights. They're doing blah, 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 blah. And, I mean, it's become one of the most, like, notable you know, venues and, like, multi-kind of purpose venues for so many different communities uh, in in recent Vancouver history. Like, so um, they were just, like, amazing, and and we felt really, uh, really, like, welcome there and and definitely at home. It was, like, it was a personal tragedy for me when the Cobalt had to close. Did the Cobalt closing kind of pull you further away from the East End community? Yeah, because now I don't really, I could go to the American and stuff, but this doesn't have the same feeling as that you know, grimy, mm-hmm. you know, it's literally where the culture and the pulse of the community is, is those spaces that are behind the alley and, you know, a broken door and they don't have the best sound system or, you know, their drinks are not the best, but they're there and they're cheap and they're plentiful and it feels safe. That was actually the start of multiple closures that Vancouver's drag community would see that year. We now know about the Cobalt, XY, and 1181, and there were more too, like the Odyssey, and some others we'll touch on in a bit. Each had their own reasons for shuttering their windows and locking their doors. But what remained the same was that each closing meant one less space where performers could let loose and perform their art in front of an enduring audience. So what did the community do? Well, a few groups of people who were putting on shows, they decided to take matters into their own hands. From Monday Productions and Van Arts Radio, I'm Max Collins. This is Dragged Out.
let's talk about what there is to do when a precocious drag performer can't find a safe, affordable space to put on a show. Do they give up? PM was faced with that question a few months into performing. Well, for me, it started with not being booked at first. Um, I really just had to because I knew I wanted to perform in this medium and people weren't receiving what I was doing well because I'd show up and do something that people might not have liked or it might have been too strange to watch. So they took a look around the city and thought, well, where would be a good place to make art? The answer was right under their nose, at Save on Meats, a local restaurant that's been around for years, but of course has never had a drag show before. So I've worked at Save on Meats for a year and a half now, and um, they, in one of our staff meetings, they asked who could we were having issues with clientele in the evenings. So they were like, can anybody just throw a party or do something here? And I raised my hand and I was like, I could maybe host a drag show here. And so then I sat down with the management team and we tried to shape it. And I'm not someone who's very comfortable on a microphone, but I had just worked with Continental Breakfast quite a bit. And I was like, that name is hysterical. Like late night snack, Continental Breakfast, Perfect. So then I kind of pulled Continental on board. It was an unconventional space, what with being a restaurant and not a club, and that it had a normally more heterosexual clientele. Well, you always have the up and downs. You do get people questioning things all the time. But instead of giving up because of the challenges, PM said, screw it. I'm going to make this work. Save on Meats took a chance on PM and vice versa. PM found a way to make a drag show work in what's basically a diner. And... Well, people are like, this is the most comfortable I've been at a show. It's an all ages show. So sometimes we have kids and then we have really, really old people. And then we have people who probably wouldn't come there ever. So it's just like really a unique show to have. So, yeah, we've just been doing it every month since. So that's why I started creating these spaces. Um, So for me, it was like a a do-or-die sort of thing. Like, I wasn't going to be booked otherwise, so why not make opportunities for myself? And that's the process of creating what's called a do-it-yourself space or show. DIY is a style of community building that has little to no corporate or commercial involvement. It's when one person or a group of people see a problem or a need in their surroundings, and they decide to put together a solution to that problem. It's a type of creative problem-solving that's unique to folks who don't have the means to, say, buy a bar and start putting on events. It often involves taking advantage of public services, like community centers or libraries. In the case of the drag community, promoters who book DIY style will find any place they could possibly imagine to put on an event, and they'll make it work. Now, this isn't a new concept. When Thanks Jam came to Vancouver, she says she regularly performed at the Anza Club, a strange little community center and social club on the east side. I just remember going to this club and there was like, you know, twinks and leather daddies and queens and bears and and hipster gays. You didn't think they were even gay and like straight people and the wives. And there was a great like community of people that were there. And I remember they had wine in boxes to serve you that were like $9. I was like, $9 for 
fucking box wine in the community center? Are you fucking crazy? And like beer that was like in a cooler that was like, you know, I just was like, this is wild, but this is, this is my new life now. And it was really fun and exciting. It just was such a different experience. Yeah. And when Jem started hosting her first monthly drag show, it was called Cool Moms. She held it in a restaurant on Commercial Drive called Café du Soleil. They would do things like bake a pie, on, roll out a pie and bake it and serve it, or, or roll out a trolley and make uh, sangria for everybody by cutting up the fruit and mixing drinks to, like, an old Lauren Bacall number with Miss Chatelaine playing afterwards, or sit in the back of a truck and play piano to Vanessa Carlton. So it's been known for a really long time that, with enough gusto, you can put on a drag show almost anywhere. From Jem's experience, too, putting on a show outside of traditional cabaret spots, it's really rewarding. It just wasn't, they weren't in the bars, so there wasn't like an older person who owns the bar breathing down someone's neck, breathing down a manager, and who's breathing down the dry queen to tell you what to do. So it was a lot more free-based and like off the cuff. I was able to say things and like blame white people for things. I've been blaming white people for a, a few years because they have to take responsibility for their actions. So yeah. you you preferred um, doing like DIY shows? And yeah. Doing, yeah. It's just, okay. it just what's more fun. That's where like culture is at. Yeah. Like it's not where the white painted walls are. It's in the grassroots. Spaces. Yeah. And I, I've always known that if you want to see culture, go to things you don't know the name of. Yeah. This is what a lot of performers are turning to if they want to host a one-off show or one that isn't established. Instead of calling up a place like The Junction or XY, they take to the streets or maybe to Facebook to see if someone knows someone who has a warehouse or ties to a community center they could use for a night. Our friend Bam Bam put on a one-off show with their partner in crime, Tommy Horror, for Halloween one year. We uh, were at the Wood Studios, which, if you've never been, is like a really cool venue. It's um, just upstairs. My friend Shay lives it lives there and uh, runs out of it. And they were super great, like gracious to be like, like yeah, dog. Like we'd love to have it here, and it's just such a like a cool like eclectic space. Like there's there's like doors and just like picture frames like wherever and it's just like a really cool like homey kind of spot because i well we wanted it to be in like a cool like dank like dungeony kind of cool looking place and and they set up everything for us they had like bloody mannequins like just chilling it was so cool (laughs) and a group of performers made up of pm rose butch continental breakfast and made in china They put on a recurring one-off show called The Darlings in warehouse spaces around the city. We want it to be more of a a theatrical piece, so we never stop moving. So it's like a 40-minute full-length work that, like, the pieces tie into one another. So we look for interludes, and then we shift the space around so nobody ever really has time to walk away and get a drink. It's more of, like, a installation-based theater piece. Okay, so it should be noted that other than community centers, like the Anza Club, the spaces that take in drag shows, you know, the ones that help promoters out with putting on a night of performances, it's not unusual that they're run by someone within the community. It'd be someone who sees a lack of spots for queer expression, and instead of queering an already established restaurant or bar, like PM did with Save on Meats, they go a step further and lease a space so that performers can move their art in there. There's a handful of these artist-run spaces in the east side. They usually set up shop in indistinct industrial buildings and 
for reasons that will be explained in a bit, they run under the radar. So taking on a job like this is unbelievably hard. It involves doing a lot of promotion for your space, but not too much that the city notices you. It involves moving from building to building, and oftentimes, the maintenance of a DIY space is thankless work. So why would someone decide to take on a DIY project as big as managing an underground venue? And how do they manage to keep the doors open? When we come back, we meet the people who run some of the best-known DIY drag spots in the city. This episode of Dragged Out is brought to you by JQ Clothing. Did you know JQ Clothing welcomes shoppers of all genders and identities to try on anything they want? It doesn't matter if you're looking for a statement piece to add to your drag outfit, or if you're curious about trying on a dress or fishnets. The team at JQ Clothing will help you find what you're looking for. No judgment and no questions asked. So stop by and try on something new, or take a look at what's in store on our Instagram at jqclothingltd. JQ Clothing, love, laughter, and acceptance for all gender identities since 2000. Welcome back to Dragged Out. So before the break, we learned that within the DIY drag scene, there are a few venues that are actually run by people that are performers themselves. These are the unsung heroes of DIY. They're usually running around during drag nights, making sure that everything is in ship shape and troubleshooting any problems that come up. And they do all this usually either by themselves or with a small group of people. Though many know the names of the venues that they run, the warehouse, Val, Eastside Studios, it's seldom obvious who runs them. My name is Christopher Reed. My performer name is Continental Breakfast, which is the name I practice all my art under. And I am the uh, operations manager of Vancouver Art and Leisure. Continental Breakfast, whom we've talked to before, they're a good example of this trait among local community builders. Along with performing in a few different DIY troops around the city, they're one of the people that runs Vancouver Art and Leisure, also known as VAL, an underground venue in the Mount Pleasant neighborhood that puts an emphasis on making space for queer entertainment. There are other people involved with VAL, some who are better known than Conti, but for this series, we'll focus solely on the work that they've done with the organization. So Continental started through humble beginnings when they first showed up at Val. I started out as bar- a bartender there. And then um, I kind of developed into my new position, um, operating the venue. And as time went on, they got more involved in the space. I helped curate the art that goes into those events, all the events we put on a back door. I helped put together the list of those people who get to work with that. That also gives me a huge outlet for my drag. Luckily, I get to host there quite a bit and, um, yeah, trying to think of new ways to innovate queer nightlife and, like, survive in queer nightlife is pretty much our main goal right now. So Continental's relationship with Val was kind of a reciprocal one. They needed a space to do drag, a place to put on shows that were tailored to the type of performance they wanted to do. In turn, and to help keep that space open and running, Conti put their time and effort into running Val and curating events that would help keep people showing up to the space. So that's kind of the same way that Paige, who runs Eastside Studios, fell into managing their DIY spaces. 
As mentioned before, Paige became interested in drag through seeing drag kings perform. And when they first started going out to see drag in 2007, the king scene was hurting a bit. So when Paige was asked by someone within that circle if they could help put on a drag king show, Paige said, well, why not? I was approached by one of the members of DKU. That stands for Drag Kings United. About sort of lighting that fire again because I had done like a one-off party um, that had some drag kings and they were like, hey, Vancouver needs drag kings back. Do you want to do this? So they started putting on drag shows. And like Continental Breakfast, Paige found a place to have the events by getting a job in a local lesbian bar. Some months after that first queer party, um, I got a bartending job at Lick. And it was a pretty casual environment in terms of the kinds of events that would get booked in. Um, Honey and Lotus is sort of where, like, the business owners spent most of their attention. And Lick was just sort of the, like, small side room that they let the bar manager just kind of operate. So my friend um, at the time and bar manager was just kind of doing the event bookings. And we were pals, and she was my boss, and I was like, hey, it's going to be my birthday. Can I do a party? And she's like, sure. So we did, like, a fundraiser, and she connected me with, um, again, one of the old performers uh, of DKU to kind of help me book some talent because I was brand new to like organizing an event in an actual venue and um, yeah and so we had some drag performers and uh, there it was like kind of a full room I probably got like 80 80 100 people out of just like friends and friends of friends they did so well that it eventually evolved into a semi-regular show that runs to this day called Man Up Along with a few DKU collaborators, they morphed this idea into an event that could help fill that gap for drag king parties. And eventually, drag thing parties, too. We still try and prioritize and make space for um, women and trans-identified performers, uh, but not necessarily masculine performance. And I think that the sort of flavor of Vancouver drag, at least maybe in in East Van, is sort of like non-binary or like gender bendy, gender blendy drag. Um, We started out as quite kind of like masculine performance focused and I think that had its place and taught us a lot and was important at the time and made space for the people we want to make space for. And as things have sort of like shifted over the years and evolved, like what people want to see and what people seem to want to perform is a more sort of like mashup type drag. And I'm thrilled that we have guys and, and like femme men and trans women um, in our shows now more than we used to. Unfortunately, though Man Up was doing well as an independent event, Paige was forced to move the event around the city because of, you guessed it, venue closures. They moved around between Lick, the Waldorf, Redgate, the Odyssey, the Cobalt, and I'm sure I'm forgetting a few others. And once Man Up lost their home at the Cobalt in 2018, Paige decided that maybe it was time they opened up a venue. So now, Man Up lives at Eastside Studios, a nondescript venue in an industrial part of town. So you can see some similarities in the stories of Continental and Paige. They both saw a lack of a specific type of queer art in their community, be it drag king performances or gender nonconforming artists. And through their social connections and community-building skills, they made that space for themselves and others like them. Like Paige and Conti, the spaces themselves have similarities, too. In speaking with Continental Breakfast, they let me know that a big focus for the people that run Val is advocating for queer nightlife and, well, queer expression in general. People being able to gather as 
a marginalized group has always been somewhat criminalized by the government, and that's where we had to harbor our safety in these queer spaces was because it was the only place we were allowed to gather. And this stunting the creative development of all of these spaces is like it's one of the smaller parts of someone who's practicing business and community in action. So what Continental is saying here is that for years, people who are pushed to the margins have been discouraged from gathering. So much so that it was, and is at times, illegal to do so. Case in point, the raids of the gay beer parlors back in the 50s and 60s. So Val fights back against the criminalization of marginalized gathering spaces by showing the city that queer spaces aren't bad. Man Up and Eastside Studios works in a similar way. But they put an emphasis on making sure that their shows can be fun for anyone. I think that we foster, you know, an environment that is, like, pretty accessible and, like, fun. It took definitely, like, more trial and error as we sort of, like, you know, us as organizers and as a performer collective or whatever, our, like, awareness and understanding kind of, like, deepened and we'd do something that wasn't okay and somebody would say that's not okay and we'd, you know shape up and do it differently next time and whatever and over over time developed as a process which seems so like obvious in hindsight but it took time to develop um like a you know protocol for booking numbers and knowing exactly what you know somebody's bringing to the stage what page means by this is that eastside studios and man up specifically makes an effort to keep out performances and people that would put others down they want to make sure that whoever comes through the doors no matter what your age, your background, your gender, your body type, any way you self-identify, you won't feel alienated or bullied or lesser than because of the art that's going on in front of you. So working in a DIY space gives you more freedom to fight for like marginalized voices than it would, say, in the mainstream? Is that what you're saying? I think so, but in kind of like a more general sort of sense, talking about like mainstream versus DIY, like there's still like a lot of misogyny and like racism and transphobia and fatphobia that exists in the mainstream world and, and you know, and things don't change in the mainstream until they are like you know, fought for in the underground, you know. But I want to, like, throw in that I, you know, I had one of our longtime dear uh, attendees who's been coming for years and who has, you know, lived through much of, like, Vancouver's, like, history, you know, since before me, you know, sent me a message and said that at, you know, one of our recent shows there were a group of queers that were, like, making fun of one of the performers and they were, like, a, you know, larger-bodied person and that this was, like, really upsetting to her and it was enough for her to leave the show. There are still assholes and there are still people who, you know, are not on the level of, like, the politics that we try and um, hold ourselves to. I hate, like, thinking about those instances, but it's important for me to know that they still happen and I don't want to have like rose-colored glasses on. I just want to like throw that out there as in like, you know, people can still suck and we all need to kind of like, as, you know, audience members and certainly as organizers, like keep, keep on like working on that, you know, and like educating our peers. So those are a few reasons why someone would want to attend a drag show at a DIY space. The people that run them are community-minded. They try to make space for people who don't see a spot for themselves in a more mainstream commercial spot, like a fancy bar. But when you take a step back and think about going to a DIY space as, say, someone who's making plans for their Friday night, doesn't it seem a little uncouth 
to spend your hard-earned cash to go see drag at a rundown warehouse in a rundown neighborhood? I mean, most of the DIY spaces in the city run by performers are old industrial buildings. Why would you want to spend time at a place like that? How's it going? Good to see you. Yes, nice to well, nice to warmly meet you. <laughs> After my phone call with Continental Breakfast, they invited me on a tour of Val's current home, the lab. I stepped inside of what looked to formerly be a mechanic garage. Conti greeted me at the entrance, and they showed me around the space. The first thing that stands out to me is this glowing room over here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Come check it out. Yeah. It was unlike any bar or club I've ever been to before. Each room was curated by a different local artist. There was a blacklight room and a Romanesque room with big columns and winged goddesses on the walls. And being in that space, you could really tell that it isn't just a business with which to make money. It's a destination. It's a place for creators and art enthusiasts to come together and express themselves. There's a lot of, like, kind of graffiti and, like, art on the walls and stuff. Yeah, so this is, like, a Dylan Kayser piece. This is, like, a Mountain Man piece. Same with this. And aside from these spaces attempting to be inclusive of marginalized groups, that's what really sets them apart from other, more conventional spaces. It's the fact that promoters, like Conti and Val or Page and Eastside Studios, they come together, and they make these unique spots for queer expression out of practically nothing. First and foremost, like, to each their own, you know? Like, get your money. And, like, express yourself and be your character and your performer however you want. I think that for, for a lot of people, performing in sort of, like, self-made or, like, alternative spaces can be more rewarding and more fun. So you can see that there are differences between the way that a commercial queer space and a DIY queer space runs. But these venues share a lot of the same struggles, too. If you thought, say, that it may be easier to run a DIY venue because they run in less expensive parts of town— you may be surprised to learn that there's a lot of bureaucracy to tiptoe around when you set up shop in a warehouse like Val. That's because the city has put rules on spaces like these where you have to get a permit to put on an event. Their, their idea of regular use for an event space venue is three permits a month. So th- for an artistic organization to pay, say, around twelve dollars to $20,000 a month for a venue... You have to make all that and your profit to be able to sustain staffing for that venue and promoters' costs that you could have to do that in three events. So, like, it's ridiculous. That's their idea of regular use. That's the city's idea of regular use is three times a month. Okay. Yeah. And that's for basically, like, um, any place that isn't, like, a commercial club or, like... Yeah, that doesn't have a permanent insured gathering permit, you need a special events permit to be able to have a gathering of people and be serving alcohol, which you also need another separate liquor license for from the BCLTV. And having only a small group of people, or maybe even one person who's running a space like Val or Eastside Studios, getting those licenses usually falls on one person. So here's the situation. In order to run a DIY venue, one would first have to find a space 
then design the interior. They'd have to curate a show with performers and artists. They'd have to get the licenses to legally put on an event in the city. They'd have to promote their event in public and over social media. They'd have to manage the event that night. And after all that, they have to look at their notes and hope that in the three events that you can put on each month, enough people showed up in order to make enough money to keep the lights on. Well, the three the three events a month thing, you know, was a direct result of the, like, bar and nightlife industry lobby against allowing, like, alternative art space type venues. Um, and I mean, I get it. It's like, it's like people are not, ma- like, one of my kind of, like, mentors um, you know, has like owned restaurants and venues in Vancouver for a long time. And he was like, it's not, it's not the nineties anymore. Like it, you know, people were making a killing running nightclubs and and stuff. Um, and it's just like, not actually like that anymore. And people, you know, businesses go under all the time. So like, I understand they have their own bottom line, but, um, at the same time, it's not reasonable, um, or ethical or, or, or beneficial to Vancouver's like culture in the long term to have the um, you know to have restrictions on on like self-made art spaces like that. That's an unfair stress that's been put on community organizers like Paige and Conti, and it can weigh on their mental health, maybe more so than a performer that puts on their show at an already established spot like XY or Save on Meats. In terms of like I guess an organizer I would say probably yes and certainly in in my experience from the people I've worked with over the years burnout the chance of burnout is higher for people working in DIY spaces there's just so much more work to do often much less money to be made you know way higher risk and the stress of that risk that you're taking on is significant and contributes to burnout so yeah Paige says that in order to keep themselves out of the burnout zone they've had to make some sacrifices in their life. Yeah, it does sort of seem like counter uh, intuitive um, that I would be performing less, even though Man Up is at like this interesting kind of like high point, it seems right now. The the demand on my time has just um, has just like increased exponentially. And in order to maintain any kind of semblance of like sanity or like work life balance, because I spend um, so much time like working on the space and um, and working on the show and and also trying to like you know keep a reasonable amount of energy on the amazing body of newcomers that are interested too like amateur hour has just like a perpetually growing wait list so I think a lot of the new kids that have been coming to man up um, you know since we left the cobalt or even just in the last like yeah year won't maybe have even seen me perform because it's so rare now so So yeah, it's not only commercial spaces or the well-known bars that have a hard time keeping their doors open. Each type of venue has its pros and its cons. It's always been a fight to keep queer spaces open, or as Conti puts it, to decriminalize queer expression. For the foreseeable future, it seems like it'll be an uphill battle. And though unconventional spaces like Val and Eastside Studios are making strides to keep queer expression going, some of these groups become casualties, much like XY or the Cobalt. Can you give me an update on what's been happening since we last talked? The venue here, we announced on Monday this week that we were closing. Um, And luckily we're booked fully until we leave. 
what's been the community's reaction to Val being shut down? Yeah, it's it's sad for so many people just because like people you know rehearse here, they get ready here, they take photos here, they shoot video here. Like, there's so much more than just the events that go on here on the weekends, and the people you know, it's like our our community just that works here is already big. And so it seems as though no LGBTQ venue is safe from the squeeze. In a 12-month span, the Alphabet community lost the Odyssey, the Cobalt, XY, 1181, and Vancouver Arts and Leisure as spaces to host drag and other queer celebrations. Those venues were situated across Vancouver's diverse queer community. The East, the West, neutral territory, mainstream, DIY, it doesn't matter where you go. Safe spaces for queer people are shutting down because they can't pay the rent. For the spots on Davy Village, it's because of red tape around how a venue owner can run their business. For DIY spaces, it's because of red tape around even getting a license to throw a party. Either way, it impacts the success of a struggling establishment in an already unaffordable city. The city is expensive. It's just like, I think, like ultimately when it comes down to it, there's like 101 problems we could point to, but, you know, like, if, if, if it wasn't so prohibitively expensive to run a regular, like, bar or, like, even a restaurant or, like, lounge venue or, like, an underground art space, all of those other problems probably wouldn't be a thing. You know what I mean? Like, it's harder to, you know, to, to like, sustain a venue for predominantly, like, queer women because they have less money to spend. Um, but, you know, if the rent of said space was, like, reasonable and the costs of operating that business were lower, then they could keep costs low enough that women would support it and it would thrive. So that kind of a thing, like, it really just comes down to money, I think. Like, all of the red tape around, like, opening a space, like, that would all be resolvable if it wasn't so expensive. I think that's, like, ultimately the bottom line. It's never being, like, priced out. It's just a matter of things being too expensive. So the opportunities for people that are producing nightlife, it's made almost impossible by how high the rental costs are for any small business owner. It's not so much that the prices keep are changing, but they've just constantly been going up and started too high in the first place. So where do we go from here? From what we know, since the mid-80s, we've been steadily losing spaces where LGBT people can gather and be weird. And that's not going to stop. As long as older neighborhoods and decrepit industrial buildings can be developed to make way for condos and boutiques, things that cater to people who have money to spend, the spaces that house niche groups will continue to be destroyed. As the queer community continues to grow in population, all the while decreasing in space, DIY and commercial spaces alike will have to think of alternative ways of keeping their hard-fought-for watering holes and dance floors full and functioning. On the next and final episode of Dragged Out, we see a glimpse into the future of Vancouver drag. This episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Max Collins. Thank you to the hardworking DIY organizers and performers who took time out of their schedules to chat. That's Thanks Gem, Rose Butch, Paige Frewer, PM, Bam Bam, and Continental Breakfast. Music for the series is by Ketza, Poddington Bear, and Bridal Party. 
Our executive producers are Martin Strong and Luke Pigeon. Isolde Dunbaron is on board as our community consultant. If you like this episode, tell me about it. Leave a comment, rate it, and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. From Vanars Radio and Monday Productions, this is Dragged Out. See you next week. Thanks to our sponsor, JQ Clothing. Visit us at 2120 Commercial Drive, just a short walk from the commercial Broadway SkyTrain station. We'll be happy to help you find your next favorite piece of clothing. You can also check out our brand new website and find our socials at www.jqclothing.com. JQ Clothing, love, laughter, and acceptance for all gender identities since 2000. I'm Hannah McGregor, and I host Secret Feminist Agenda, a weekly podcast about the often mundane ways we enact our feminism in our daily lives. Join me as I talk to guests like award-winning Haudenosaunee writer Alicia Elliott. Capitalism and colonialism is killing us all. Improviser and voice actor Amber Nash. It's like we're not just telling stories that white men tell. And the original feminist killjoy Sarah Ahmed. You know, the question of living a feminist life is a very practical question. Plus, on alternating weeks, I talk to you about what my secret feminist agenda is. Things like watching Jurassic Park more often. New episodes start airing in August, but until then, you can find hours of feminist brilliance and hilarity at secretfeministagenda.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Seriously, like the dinosaurs are a metaphor for, for feminism.